Well, good morning, everyone. How we doing? All right. Uh, hey, if you're new, my name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor here at the bridge, and just so so glad to see you. I love I love Sundays. Who here loves Sundays? And everyone else is a party pooper. <laughs> so Francis Chan. Um, you don't know who Francis Chan is. He's a very well-known Asian-American pastor, author, speaker. And um, Francis used to lead a mega church in Simi Valley, literally thousands of people. And um, he kind of has this famous story, maybe you've heard this before, but um, he recalls a time when he was leading his church. He's no longer there. He left a while ago. Um, nothing bad happened. He just moved on. And he remembers this time in his mega church in Simi Valley that a gang member got saved. And this gang member completely made a U-turn in his lifestyle, like done with gangs, dropped that whole system, culture, what have you, and he experienced radical transformation, like just like the definition of repentance and U-turn. Um, and then he got baptized. And then about a year later, though, disappears from the church. And some of the leaders had noticed this, some of the friends. And so a leader in the congregation sought him out and asked, hey, like, what happened? Like, you were here for a year, you had this radical transformation, it was amazing what God was doing, um, what happened? And here's what he said. He said, I had the wrong idea about what I thought church would be. I thought it would be like family, a different kind of family. See, when I was in the gangs, we hung together, we had each other's backs, we took care of each other, we were committed to one another 24-7, not just two meetings a week. Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And so he says, when I got here, it was like each person was on their own, and there was just no reason for me to be here with these people. This individual was expecting his baptism to usher him into another family where people are for you 24-7, like the gangs had been. It's actually some really good theology. Hearing that story was devastating for Francis Chan. And it was actually stories like that, not the only one, where he got sick and tired of the American church. And he went on to start house churches and church planning in San Francisco, and now he does stuff internationally. But here's what Francis Chan wrote about that. There's a problem when the gangs are a better picture of family than the church of Jesus Christ. Let me read that one more time. There is a problem when the gangs are a better picture of family than the church of Jesus Christ. With that, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. 
four verses this morning, verses 31 through 35. Um, if you need a Bible, we have these beautiful free orange ones underneath your chairs, and I'll be reading from page 684. So Mark 3, starting at verse 31. Um, here's the swing, the swing, the scene. If you are here last week, um, the gist of it is this, pretty wild scene. Jesus' family and the religious scholars of the day think he's insane. They think he's mad. They think he's crazy. And they take it even one step further and they say he's demon-possessed. Quite, I mean, quite the charge. Like, we, we should be a little rattled by that. Um, what's fascinating in this one is that little does Jesus' family know what he's about ready to say which actually, in some ways, will only confirm their perception of him being insane. So Jesus doesn't, like, take his foot off the gas after them calling him insane. He actually puts it more on the gas. Again, Jesus is a fascinating, fascinating person. He's also brilliant. So here's what we read, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother's mother, he only had one mother, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. So, I mean, the, the picture here is it's a packed house. Like, his family can't even get to him physically. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, who are my mother? And my brothers, Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said this. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Really short this morning. One of the biggest differences between our world today... And the first century Mediterranean world, there's a lot of differences, but actually, honestly, probably top three is that our culture in America today as a Western country is we live in what's called an individualistic culture. Um, but honestly, everyone else, any non-Western country, so Asia, Africa, um, the, the Middle East, obviously, where Jesus is from, live in what's called a collectivist society. So we are individualistic, but most all other countries and cultures, even still now, not 2,000 years ago, are collectivistic. Now, what does this mean? Those are kind of fancy sociological words. Um, let me explain what this means by uh, an, an example, a story, out of a book that I read this past week. Um, this was a brilliant book. It's called When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman. And he shares this story. I found this so eye-opening. He says, two young women, and they're, they're fellow students in a Christian university, they found themselves comparing strategies um, regarding marriage from, from their two cultures. Um, but here's what you need to know. One of the ladies was American, and the other woman was from Iran. And uh, the, the girl from Iran, she was actually expecting, she was looking ahead to that summer coming up, she was marrying a man whom her parents had picked out for her. And they picked out this man years before, she didn't know him. So this young Iranian bride will be marrying a guy that she doesn't know. 
The American girl is absolutely astounded and shocked by this. So she says, how could you let your parents choose a guy for you to marry that you don't even know? And then, and then she proceeded to, to, you know, kind of lift up Western marriage strategies, the freedom that she had to choose her own spouse. But then this young Iranian bride was completely shocked and astounded at what this American girl said. She said, how can you act independently of your parents and sign up for a marriage that may not contribute to to the long-term health and well-being of your extended family? The cultural distinctives are quite clear, and so are the different priorities. In America, in choosing a spouse, we lift up and prioritize our own individual well-being, our personal fulfillment and happiness, right? Marriage is the place, like, first and foremost, um, where your individual relational needs are met. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with that. And really, the only way for that to be achieved, and frankly, it's actually not even statistically, it's achieved, not achieved half the time, but at least half the time, um, we achieve that by choosing our own mate. Now, the Iranian woman, just like from all other traditional societies across the globe and across history, has been raised to think quite the opposite. They've been raised to think that the honor and health, in this case the family, should take priority over freedom and your personal choice of who to marry. And so for her, she was quite content. She wasn't mad, she wasn't frustrated. She was quite content to sacrifice her freedom for a mate, if it brought health and honor to her, to her larger extended family. Now, here's the ironic thing. The Iranian bride will likely end up just as happily married as her American counterpart. So one, one jokester put it this way. In traditional societies, a man's parents choose his wife. And he doesn't know who she is until they marry. And even though the custom in America is completely different, the end result is often just the same. You can laugh at that. That's okay. The point is, we Americans think we know how to do things, including marriage. We think, oh, I'll choose my own spouse. And the ironic thing about it is statistically, 50% of the time, it doesn't work. So we poke fun of them, but actually the joke's on us. Did you know they actually have a lower divorce rate? Fascinating stuff. In the ancient world of Jesus, and in many cultures still today, family is everything. Your family group is more important than you as an individual. And so I think often we take Jesus' comment in Mark 3, 
you know, oh, my, my mother and my brothers, it's everyone who does the will of God. Oh, Jesus, man, that, that's just so like warm, fuzzy, hallmarky, cliche. That, that's just such a, wow, what a great ideal to say. Actually, it's probably one of, if not one of the most radical statements that Jesus put forth, and it is impossible to overstate this. Jesus offers here a shocking redefinition of family. In that culture, family was everything, and he agrees with that. He's just saying now that obedience to God is thicker than your blood. So who really are your brothers and your sisters? Jesus says, those who apprentice or disciple after him. Now, the other thing that we got to catch here, which is so easy to miss, um, scholars, I mean, this just... It's a very black and white statement here. Scholars tell us that in the ancient world, in the first century Mediterranean world, do you know what the strongest uh, family bond relationship was? Any guesses? Peggy says siblings. Elena says siblings. So we would think as Americans, we would, I think most people would say, you know, spouse, a marriage is, is the strongest relational bond that we have in the family. Now, I actually guess that in the first century world, it would be between uh, parents and child, like father-son, father-daughter, whatever. We have two brilliant scholars with us, actually, Peggy and Elena. (laughs) They are absolutely right. The strongest bond in the first century Mediterranean world was between siblings, brother and sister. So there was an obligation to have an undying loyalty towards your blood, brother, and sisters. If you betrayed your brother or your sister, um, that was actually far more treacherous than disloyalty to your spouse. I mean, think about that. That's just opposite for us. So again, Jesus says here, whoever does God's will is my brother." And sister. Now, once you see this, this should be shocking to us on a number of levels. One, culturally, but actually then how we even read the Bible. So the Greek noun for brother and sister is adelphoi. Adelphoi is used some 343 times in the New Testament alone. Meaning, it's a common word. It's a common metaphor. It's actually not a metaphor, and that's what I want to say. If you get to the Apostle Paul's letter, so the Apostle Paul is like this genius church planner in the New Testament that Jesus commissions out, and he just goes all over the world, literally. You can visit his places today, and he starts churches. And then he writes letters to them, and that's actually what a majority of the New Testament is, is this Paul guy writing letters to churches that he's helped create. And when you read Paul's letters, you will see words like brother, sister, father, adoption, inheritance, family, so on. I read those as casual metaphorical words, and I think that's completely wrong. Because I think Paul really actually thinks literally what he's writing, the church is a family. Now, in case you think I'm insane, 
Let's test this out. 1 Corinthians 1.11. We're going to use 1 Corinthians as a, uh, as a test. One of Paul's most popular, popular letters. So 1 Corinthians 1, this is on uh, page 779. I, I'm just going to shotgun through these, all right? You'll get the feel. 1 Corinthians 1.11, here it is. How does he start? My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Siblings never fight. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. so same chapter. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Just literally, next chapter, 1 Corinthians 2.1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Hopefully you're tired of this now, but one more, 1 Corinthians 3.1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. So, that's just three chapters. Paul's written multiple letters. <laughs> And just casually, like it's nothing, he just calls everyone, even people who are frustrating him, brothers and sisters. Who do you think started this idea? Jesus of Nazareth, Mark 3, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now remember... That circle around Jesus. Who makes up the people he's talking to? Well, it's tax collectors, prostitutes, people who used to be demon-possessed, two, two blood brothers who have anger issues such that their nickname is Sons of Thunder. Political zealots, rugged fishermen. And there's even one person who is probably in that circle that would end up denying Jesus, like betraying him. And Jesus has the audacity to say, here are my brothers and sisters. I imagine that if Jesus was here today in human flesh, and there were people around him, I would imagine these might be some of the categories that Jesus would be saying this to, Republicans and Democrats, vaccinators, unvaccinators, the elderly and the young, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, the blue collar and the white collar. How about this one? The extroverts and the introverts. How about iPhone users and Android users? <laughs> you guys know that person who's in your group text, that one person who uses an Android, and they make the text green? Yeah, all us iPhone people, we know who you are, and we judge you. <laughs> They're the only ones not laughing right now. <laughs> and perhaps maybe even in Jesus' group, there would be Dodger and Angel fans. I do have hope for the angels this year. All right. So, so whoever does the will of God is my mother 
and a brother and sister. Now, when we talk about the church's family, isn't that so easy? Oh, what a great ideal. Church's family? That's, again, that's so warm and relational. I love that ideal. What a great vision. And it is great news, and it's, an un, it's almost an unbelievable reality because everyone wants a great family. But if you're a realist, that's me. Here's where my mind goes. Yeah. Family's messy. Family's not easy. And here's the thing about family. You don't get to choose your family. You're born into it. When you become a follower of Jesus, we love to talk about gaining a heavenly father. But did you know that you also gained spiritual brothers and sisters? To become a Christian, as Joseph Hellerman says, is to become both a child of God and a sibling in God's family. Or as a third century Bishop Cyprian said, this is a famous church father quote, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. You see what he's, you see what he's saying there? In today's vernacular, I hear this all the time. Oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And I understand that, sent, that, that sentiment, and I'm sympathetic towards it, because that probably means they've experienced damage and dysfunction in the church. However, when you claim Jesus, you claim his family. You, you get one with the other. Story time. I've been waiting to use this story for years in the making. And I have my wife and my mother and father in here. Rachel and I had been married for one month. And uh, we hadn't gone on an extended family trip yet. <laughs> You're so honest, Peggy. <laughs> and um, I think we're probably pretty naive, like, because we hadn't done that. So, again, if I would have heard this sermon, if I would have given this sermon seven years ago, church is family, yeah, we're all family, come on, people, like, hug each other, kiss each other, let's go. So, <clears throat> we go up to Northern California to visit my grandma and aunt. It's on my dad's side of the family, so we fly into Sacramento, and then we drive an hour out um, to a small little town, and we get there after midnight. All right, so we're tired, short flight, long drive, curvy, and um, my grandma and aunt live in a very small mobile home. So because of that, there's five adults, so it's me, Rachel, my mom and dad, and my older sister, Becca. Becca, if you're watching this, I'm sorry because it makes her look bad. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so there's five extra adults, so we can't all, you know, fit in, in grandma's mobile home, which is totally fine. So there's a hotel nearby, so we reserve some rooms, right? My mom does this, bless my mom's heart. Um, she did this on her iPad, but she even printed out physical copies of the confirmation. And I, I usually make fun of my mom for things like that, like, hey, you can just show them your phone or iPad, like, you don't need to print it out, like, just show it to them. Everything's good to go. Well, thankfully, actually, my mom brought the printed out reservation. So we get to the hotel, 
and uh, we walk in the, the lobby, and we notice that the parking lot was full, and we notice the parking lot was full of like all like uh, electrical utility vans, like Edison. That's kind of odd, right? Okay, whatever. So we get into the lobby, go to check in. My mom whips out the physical printouts, and the front desk lady, um, we tell her, and she's like, oh, well, that's weird. Like, I don't see any reservations for you tonight. <clears throat> oh. My mom, here's the paper, and my mom's right. Like, clearly on the paper, she did it correctly, they were wrong, their computer system's wrong. Hmm. Okay. Well, at this point, it's like, okay, well, hey, just just get us some rooms, like, we're cool, like, you know, we'll figure it out, like, you know, no no big deal. And, and well, the the lady responds back, well, no, we, we don't have any rooms available. Like, did you see the Edison utility trucks and vans in the parking lot? Um, so this was, I don't know if you remember this years ago, it's probably like six years ago, uh, there were all these fires up north. And so what had happened, um, all these, they had to come in and repair all the electrical lines because it all got burnt down, all that kind of stuff. And so in this region, there's hundreds of like Edison utility vans. And uh, she's like, no, no, we don't have any rooms. They're all full because of the, the fire. Okay. Well, let's just call some local hotels. Every hotel within an hour is full because of the same issue. Yeah, I mean, like, this whole thing's going on. We would have to go back to Sacramento Airport to get a hotel. That's over an hour away, long, you know, curvy drive, don't want to do that. At this point, as a preacher, I'm just like, wow, this is amazing, This is the perfect Christmas Eve sermon. There's literally no room in the inn. (laughs) Brilliant. Man, let me just add that to my my diary of examples. (laughs) Now, at this point, none of us start to think this is funny anymore. Because you have five adults with nowhere to sleep. And we're there for a couple days. So my sister starts to figure out, I mean, she wasn't right at the desk. She's, you know, a couple feet behind, probably talking to her husband or something. And she figures out the dire situation that we're in. And my sister explodes with anger. And my sister picks up her luggage and throws it. Like, there, there's a couple stairs nearby where she, just a couple steps. She throws it down the stairs. And Rachel, at this point, one month into marriage, first Loman family trip, (laughs) what in the world is going on? It gets better. We're just getting going, guys. So then the lady perks up behind the front desk. Hey, I was able to clear one room for you, but it only has one bed. And it's a smoking room. I'm like, smoke, do those still even exist? Like, I, I didn't know hotels still had smoking rooms. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it was like a 70s thing or something. Look around at us five. My parents, eh, they're not taking it. Rachel, eh, she's not taking it. Me and Becca. So a month into our marriage, I sleep in the same bed as my sister with a cloud of smoke over us, and I sacrifice the health of my lungs 
things for the sake of others. And it's like my sister and I were three or four years old again, cuddling. Great experience. Gets better. So what happened to the other three, Rachel and my parents? Well, they have no option. They don't want smoke in their lungs. And so they go back to grandma's mobile home. My dad sleeps on the small, janky couch, bless his heart, and my mom and Rachel. Well, they share a twin bed (laughs) that's broken and slanted down on one side. So here's Rachel's head on one side and my mom's head on the other, which means this, that my mom's feet are next to Rachel's head and (laughs) Rachel's feet are next to my mom's face. What in the world did I get myself into? It gets better. I would say that Rachel woke up in the middle of the night, but she didn't really wake up because she never went down. Middle of the night, like, hears and sees something. And there's my aunt, who she's never met before, on her knees on the carpet. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Looking for her cat at 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) You don't get to choose your family. And it's messy. And it's tough. And it's not always dreamy. And family often drives you nuts. But you know what? So it is in the family of God. But you also know what? Transformation happens in the family of God. Bridgetown Church up in Portland, Oregon, church that I've done a lot with in the last couple of years, they uh, came up with something called the five stages of community. And I read this also on a blog um, a couple of days ago. And I want to share this model with us because I think this is so insightful. It puts words to what you and I already know, and it helps us in this conversation. So there's five stages to community, to family. Here's stage one. We'll put this up. Um, They call it the honeymoon. In stage one, during the honeymoon phase, everything is brand new and shiny. For a church, if you're brand new, you've moved here, um, you have a couple things in common with people. A, you love Jesus, and B, you share some type of regional address. You live in the same area, um, but that's something, and it's more than you had before. And people in stage one, here's how they talk. Everything is great. We've hung out five times this week. I've never been a part of anything like this. That's the honeymoon. Stage two. They label it apathy. Now, in stage two, the honeymoon phase wears off. And you begin to realize how normal people are. Things feel routine, less exciting. You start to settle in and you get bored. Um, Here's how conversation feels in stage two. It's a little bit less passionate. It's, how's it going? Fine. Oh, I'm just struggling with the same old thing, but whatever. That's stage two, apathy and community. Now, here's stage three. It's called the rough patch. Stage three can be marked by conflict 
frustration or even fear of frustration. It's when um, things normalize with others that the real you begins to emerge, like the real you with all the issues, and you start clashing over preferences, maybe not even like sin issues, but just preferences like what life stage are you in or parenting style. Um, This is how people talk in phase three. Oh, man, that person, they always talk about the same thing over and over. Man, that person's really annoying. Man, that person's wrong, and they need to be confronted. Stage four, acceptance. Stage four is when you realize that for better or worse, these are actually the people of God that God has put around you on purpose, and that you begin to see that everyone is an image bearer of God that brings their unique perspective and their giftings to help you and others actually become more like Jesus, even with their flaws and annoyance. So here's how people in stage four talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, this person can be annoying, this person can be frustrating, but they also make everyone feel listened to and heard. Ah, man, this person shares the same thing over and over and over again, but, man, they're just always willing to help someone in need at any moment. And the last stage, stage five, they call re-engagement. In stage five, we press back into vulnerability and accountability, not with the early idealism of the honeymoon but this time with genuine love and understanding. And this means that conflict resolution and hard conversations happen, but they don't happen out of frustration. They happen out of actually deep love and respect for someone. Now here's what I want to ask you this morning. What stage are you in? What stage are you in? Here at the bridge, I mean, you, you're at least here now, so at least your first time. What stage of family life, of community life, are you in right now? One, two, three, four, or five. Joseph Hellerman, in his book, When the Church Was a Family, writes this. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Now check this out. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they may mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. Let me read that one more time. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow and people who leave do not. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, 
These spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. People who leave to escape the hard work of conflict resolution are often destined to repeat the cycle of relational dysfunction with another person in another church somewhere else in town. Now that stings. I think he's absolutely right, though. What stage are you in? What stage are you in? Honeymoon phase? If you're here and you're in the honeymoon phase at the bridge, there will be a day when the honeymoon's over. And if you're in the apathy stage, Things could get worse. The rough patch. That's the bad news. You know what the good news is, though? That stage four and five is where the Holy Spirit transforms your life to become more and more like Jesus. And there's nothing in life that will do that better than being part of a church family. And that's a good thing. Brothers and sisters, whoever does my will is in the family of God. You catch that? Family is a great metaphor. We think it's all warm, cozy, and fuzzy, but it's hard. But it is so worth it. And so as we wrap up this morning, we're going to move into a time of corporate communion. Um, But here's my question. Do you see yourself, or actually, let's put this the other way around. How do others see you here? Can they count on you as a brother and sister in Jesus? Meaning, are you invested and loving like a sibling does in a family? Do you contribute? Do you love even when you don't want to? Do you have a faithful sense of commitment even when it's hard. Because that's what family does. Family, I mean, just to speak really like uncool language. And when you're in a family, like you, you got chores, you got things you gotta do. But it's also the deepest, most shaping, forming, awesome part of your life if it's done in a healthy, functional manner. I'm very aware that there's dysfunctional and toxic family dynamics. I'll get to that after communion. So here's what I want us to do this morning. This is going to be different. I want everyone to stand up. And we are going to form a circle in this worship center. So, actually I lied. It's not going to be a circle. It's going to be a rectangle. Forgive me. So, if you need to sit down, because I know some of us physically, like, hey, we need to sit down, in the very back row would be a great place if you need a seat, or on the outer edges. Otherwise, everyone right here, meep, all around, giant, giant square. So, I, I need you to, let's, let's form the square now. And take your communion cup, thank you, my wife is far smarter than I am. <laughs> take your communion cup with you. We're doing good. We're going to have to spread out here. 
The point of this is that everyone should be facing one another. Looks like we got some room over here towards the cry room. There is some room. There's also some chairs back there. So if you need a seat, there are chairs right in front of the cry room. So you should have your communion cup with you, all right? The juice and the wafer are in there. Before we take the elements, it's kind of our, our liturgy this morning. I'm going to read for us Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7. All right, so this comes out of Galatians 3. I want you to notice all the family language in this. We'll put it up on the screens. Let me read this out loud for you, all right? So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Everyone you're looking at right now is a child of God through faith. For you are all baptized into Christ Jesus. You've been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Whoever you are in here, whatever you've done, male or female, whatever political affiliation, whatever you do, we are one. We are family in this house. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And you are heirs according to this promise. And here's the gospel. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to the family of God. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, Daddy. You are no longer a slave, but every single one of us in here, we are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. As you hold the cup, here's what I want us to hear. It is absolutely true that family is made up of blood. In our case, it's made up of Jesus' blood. We are one family. Regardless of race, age, economic standing, political affiliation, and what you have or haven't done, because, here's the why, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he poured out his blood so that we could be reconciled with one another. The gospel isn't just about me and God, it's also about me and each other. We are a family. Even when we frustrate and irritate one another because of what we celebrate this morning. So if you could open the first tab. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus said this, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said this, take it, this is my body, let us eat together. And then open up the second lid to the cup. Jesus said this, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let us as a family partake of the cup together. Now, 
Make sure you put that in the trash can. You all have that family chore to do. But here's what we're going to do now. We're going to sing the song together, which is all about the people of God being one. And I want us to sing it where we are right now. After the first song, Aaron's going to facilitate some ministry time for us and we can go back to our chairs. But let's sing this together as the family of God purchased by the blood of Jesus. Jesus.